I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. The court is out this week as the justices get to work writing the final opinions of the term. In lieu of a normal episode, I'd like to share a clip of former Solicitor General Paul Clement's remarks at a symposium put on this week by the Heritage Foundation and the Bradley Foundation. Paul offered his thoughts on the old adage that changing one member of the Supreme Court creates a whole new court, and he provided tips for how to get the justices to overturn past decisions. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to talk about sort of stare decisis from a lawyer's perspective, and the reason that lawyer's perspective is in the title is to sort of excuse me from the need to have a grand theory of stare decisis or what, you know, the proper role of stare decisis really ought to be. I'm going to talk about it really from more the perspective of the litigator, which in the Supreme Court means trying to get to five for your client. Um, So with that that caveat in mind, I I want to start by talking about kind of the current Supreme Court. Uh, One of the oldest adages in Washington, D.C. is if you change one member of the Supreme Court, uh, you really get a whole new court. And I think that's actually generally true. I think people who are watching the court not as closely as Supreme Court litigators sometimes fail to appreciate how much the interpersonal dynamics of the justices make a huge difference as to how they decide cases and how they interact. Uh, you know, it's easy to look at the sort of you know, the job description of a Supreme Court justice and think, wow, that's a, that's a really great job in, in part because you have life tenure. But if you think about it in terms of basically being stuck with eight other people uh, that you didn't pick for the rest of your life, <laughs> so it's a fine line between life tenure and a life sentence. <laughs> and, and so I, I do think even in a normal switch where it, the switch, it doesn't really affect the obvious balance of power on the Supreme Court or the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court, The adage is true. Just changing a single justice can really change the dynamic of the court in pretty important ways. I think in this particular most recent edition of a new justice, though, uh, you really have this adage taking on really powerful meaning for two related reasons. I mean, one is the nature of the confirmation hearings. And I do think that the the other eight justices might have had slightly different perspectives on who was most to blame and why the process got to where it has gotten. But I think all of the other eight justices looking at this process thought this really does not reflect well on the court as an institution. And so I think the fact that the the confirmation hearings had the characteristics that they did has had an impact on the way the court is trying to operate the way justices are interacting with each other. And so I do think that's a particular uh, aspect of this particular switch of a justice. The second thing, and this is maybe the most obvious point, is we've gotten used to a series of changes of personnel on the Supreme Court in recent years that haven't really changed where the court is on important issues. And especially given some of the nominations in the past, where presidents got justices that behaved very differently from what the president had in mind when they made the nomination. You know, some, one of the most interesting things about the last, say, you know, four or five nominations before 
Justice Kavanaugh is that the, the presidents have pretty much gotten the justice they were looking for, and the court's overall sort of trajectory hasn't changed that much because you've basically had more or less like-for-like -like switches. And I, I, I suppose of the recent appointments until Justice Kavanaugh, the most consequential change was Justice Alito for Justice O'Connor. But the other ones really were almost pure like-for-like -like switches. And so the fact that Justice Kennedy is replacing Justice Kavanaugh certainly does have the prospect of being a more dramatic change in the trajectory of the court. I think court watchers have gotten used to probably going back 40 or 50 years to trying to identify who is the swing justice. And for the last decade, that's been pretty obviously Justice Kennedy. And I think before that, it was pretty obviously Justice O'Connor, and one could go back even further. I think in the search for the swing justice on the current court, I'm not sure there is one. And that isn't to say that I don't think there's the fifth justice whose vote is most likely to be the one that a lawyer has to be most focused on in trying to get to five. But I don't think it's right to think of that justice as a swing justice. So the justice I have in mind is perhaps not surprisingly the chief justice. And I don't think it, it's really right to think about him as a swing justice in the sense of you know, his vote really being up for grabs and even sort of how he is going to think about a legal issue going to be sort of swinging from one side to the other. I think the right way to think about the chief justice is less as a swing justice and more as a governor switch or a regulator who will be the justice that determines how quickly the court moves in one direction or another and how quickly the court is willing to, and boldly, the court is willing to revisit certain areas or stay a course that at least five justices may actually think isn't exactly the right course, but the chief justice in particular may be concerned about overturning past precedent of the Supreme Court. And that's why I think that the issue of stare decisis is so important uh, from a litigator's perspective and thinking about what the Supreme Court uh, is going to look like in the years going forward. And so I'd, I'd say really a couple of things about this. One is that part of the reason that this is important and controversial and probably does dictate how quickly the court moves, gets back to that confirmation process. I mean, every one of the justices that goes for, through that confirmation process gets asked over and over again about stare decisis and precedent and super duper precedent and all the rest. And so I do think there's kind of a natural reluctance to, you know, once you've gone through that process to then immediately switch gears and immediately adopt Justice Thomas's view of stare decisis, which is essentially, if it's wrong, we should overrule it. Um, but, and and the, the other second point I'd make about why this is so front and center in thinking about the court going forward is this is obvious from this term before the Supreme Court. There's, by my count, at least four cases where the Supreme Court has directly in front of it the question of whether to overrule one of its precedents. Um, and there's, that really understates it. But there's four where it's literally like the question presented is, should the court overrule its precedent in fill in the blank? 
And so that's the Nick case involving uh, a takings clause issue that's being ably litigated by the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, the Hyatt case involving state sovereign immunity, uh, a case about the separate sovereigns exception to the double jeopardy clause, and a case involving administrative law, which may provide a, a, a helpful segue, but uh, as to whether or not to overrule the so-called Our Doctrine or Seminole Rock Doctrine. Um, so four cases where it's squarely presented. Um, one interesting fact that all four of those cases have in common is that the Supreme Court hasn't decided them yet even though it's relatively late in the term, and some of these cases were uh, argued relatively early in the term. Uh, most intriguingly, of course, is the Nick case, which was argued at the very beginning of the term, even before Justice Kavanaugh was finally confirmed, and then had to be re-argued later in the term, presumably because the justices were evenly split about what to do with their prior precedent in uh, the Williamson County case. So this will be an important theme that the Supreme Court has in this term. This term isn't the most otherwise kind of interesting term in terms of having lots of headline-grabbing blockbuster cases. There's actually something to be said for that. I think in watching the returns of the court this term and what it says for the future of the court, there may be very little you can do that's more effective than paying attention to those four cases where stare decisis is front and center and see how the court decides those cases and how they divide. I'll go out on a limb here and say I'm quite sure they're not going to overrule all four cases. I'd be surprised if they didn't overrule at least one of them. And so I think sort of which one they decide to overrule and why that one and not the others and what the various justices say about that I think will be profoundly important in terms of measuring the trajectory of the court going forward. As I said, I think four really uh, understates the matter. Um, there's a fifth case, which is the partisan gerrymandering case, where I suppose you could say part of the question is whether the court should overrule Davis v. Vandermeer. Um, we did not put that question. I was involved in the litigation of that case. We did not put that question front and center. And that's a segue to the final thing I want to talk about is from a litigator's perspective, if you are trying to litigate a case where there is a precedent of the Supreme Court uh, that you think is wrongly decided and is in the way of your client getting to the victory circle, how do you deal with that fact? And so I'd offer three observations that seem to me to be good advice for litigators in dealing with stare decisis issues in the current Robert court, Roberts court. Um, the first is, as a general matter, I think about asking the court to overrule one of its cases as kind of break glass in case of emergency. Um, you shouldn't be afraid to do it. I mean, there are emergencies, but it should not be, as a general matter, your litigation strategy of first resort. Um, I have, you know, effectively written a 60-page brief that didn't mention the idea of overruling one of the court's cases until about page 57, and they actually did it in that case. But it, 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 it just goes to show that you ought to give the court lots of lots of reasons to think that you're right before you then say, oh, and this previous turn that you took in the opposite direction was not just wrong, but so manifestly wrong that you should overturn it. Uh, the second piece of advice, which directly follows from that page allocation in the brief I mentioned, is there's no particular need to dwell on the matter or wrap yourself around the axle in arguing the various factors that the court from time to time 
has articulated as being the basis for when it will overturn its decisions. I mean, I, I certainly think it's important to nod in the direction of those factors and to cite your favorite case. Uh, Payne v. Tennessee is one that, you know, kind of nicely articulates the factors, and the court did, in fact, overturn one of its cases, so it gets to the right, the right place at the end of the day, and you certainly have to understand that considerations like reliance interest and the workability of the test in practice and the like are useful, but I think it's a mistake to think that the court is so sort of consistent about how it thinks about stare decisis factors that the way to really kind of win one of these cases is to really convince them that the three or four factors articulated in Payne v. Tennessee all cut in your favor. I think you can do essentially all you need to do in about three pages at the end of your brief. And then the last piece of advice I would offer is, and I think this is particularly true in the current court and particularly true with Chief Justice Roberts, is keep in mind that this is a long-term objective. I mean, don't think that you will necessarily overturn a precedent that is in the way of where you want to go in your first crack at the case. And I think one of the things that is really a discernible methodology of Chief Justice Roberts in particular when it comes to matters of stare decisis is his favorite methodology seems to be to essentially chip away at cases in various steps so that the day that the case is actually overruled it's, it's, it's really not even news. It's, it's been coming for a couple of years, and its demise was so you know, earlier predicted that it's just it's not a big deal. Of course they overturned Austin against Michigan in Citizens United. I mean, they signaled that in an earlier case. They signaled that through re-argument of the case to focus specifically on that question. And then when it happens, of course it happened. I mean, of course, of course that case was overruled. You saw this in the last couple of terms with Abood as well in the public sector union context. I mean, the court chipped away on that. They had a prior case involving Illinois where they all but overruled Abood. Uh, you know, they, because of, of, of Justice Scalia, the timing of Justice Scalia's passing, uh, they had an argument to overrule it, and then that had to be essentially put on hold for a couple of years. And so, my goodness, by the time they overruled last term, uh, it was the oldest news in town. So I do think that with respect to stare decisis in the current court, uh, it, it pays to take the long view and have a long-term project of taking down the case that, that, that you have in your sights. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at scotus101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.